As we come to the preaching of God's Word, we come then to Ephesians in chapter 1. And for the sake of some context, we'll read from verse 15 and we'll read onward. Isaiah, or rather Ephesians 1 from verse 15 as Paul recounts his praying for the Ephesians. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. You may know what is the hope of His calling and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of His power to us word who believe according to the working of His mighty power which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead set Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality, power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. He hath put all things under His feet, gave Him to be head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. Notice particularly verse 17, that Paul is praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. He's speaking to a people converted. He mentions that in verse 15. After I heard of your faith, and, as he says, love unto all the saints. So there's faith and love. And you'll remember when we talk of conversion, we speak of that turning to God in faith and that repentance from dead works to living works of love all of which is the effectual working of God's gracious Spirit. And so Paul is writing to those who give evidence of being converted. But notice what he doesn't do. What Paul doesn't do is say, you've been converted. Now I'm going to direct my attention to other people. Certainly Paul, with his commission and ordination as an apostle to the Gentiles had a broad scope of his apostolic ministry. And so he was laboring here, there, and seemingly everywhere in the known Western world. But, so soon as he heard of one being converted, he continued with now a more earnest petition for the continual advance of what was begun in conversion. And in particular, he prays, as is here, that God would cause the eyes of the converted ones to be enlightened. We might say, but wait, aren't they already enlightened? They've seen, they've entered into the kingdom of heaven. So what is it that's going on? But notice he goes further to explain it. That ye may know what is the hope of His calling. And what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and so on. And so in other words, he's saying your eyes have been opened, but they need to be continually opened, and the light of His truth must continually penetrate, as it were, those spiritual retinas, so as that your soul would be upheld, strengthened, and advanced. Children, think of it this way. The morning is dark, Your parents turn on the light and they say, get up. And then if they were to turn the light back off and it's pitch black outside, you wouldn't be able to see. The light was on, you're awake. Now what do you do with the lights off? The light's on and left on and they tell you to open your eyes, right? And you sit there in bed and your eyes drift off and so on. They say, no, no, you got to get up. What's the point? It's not sufficient that the light was turned on for a moment, and the eyes were open for a moment, how many of us have gotten up only to walk over to the clock, turn it off, and then get right back into bed? Close our eyes. It's over. Paul is saying, your eyes have been opened, but it requires God's grace that they be maintained open. And it requires God's grace to, as it were, provide the spiritual light into those eyes of understanding that you would be strengthened unto a holy and happy fellowship 
and walk with God. So we've considered a lot in this little series on conversion last week. We considered the new standard, the rule of God's people, which is God's word. And now we see a connection. Paul doesn't just say, well, I'll go read the Bible. But rather, whereas he's writing part of the Bible, of course, to them, and he would refer them to the Old Testament as well, notice he's praying that as revelation is given, they would also be given the Spirit to help them understand. So it's telling us something. It's not merely, it's not merely a rational exercise that's needed. Now we need to understand, here's the subject, here's the predicate, here's the noun, here's the verb, here's the adjective, and how they relate. Now it's not that we have to map out the grammar of every sentence, but in order to read and profit from God's Word, we have to understand the basics and be able to say, I get it. I get what's being said in the main. And yet Paul doesn't say that's it. He's saying there's a spiritual gift that is required if ever we're actually going to profit. Our souls must be opened by the Spirit so that the light of truth would permeate all that is within us, transforming us, not just to know about, but notice the language, that we would know a word of simplicity and yet a powerful intimacy. There is that very chaste description in the Scriptures of that most intimate act of husband and wife, and it's simply stated as, the man knew his wife. That is an expression of tremendous knowledge that far transcends the mere factual knowing about. Brethren, this knowledge that is spoken here is of a deep and intimate and a vital sort that is more than just being able to rattle off facts and figures. There is, of course, something that we understand with reference to knowing a person. If someone were to say, do you know so-and-so? It's not just asking, do you know what their name is? Do you know how tall they are? Do you know perhaps where they live? That's included, perhaps. But really, if you know so-and-so, there's a familiarity and there's an understanding of their thoughts and minds. And so, of course, there might be something going on and we say, well, I know that person and he won't fill in the blank, want that, or he won't do that because we've been around and we sort of understand the way they think. That's what's going on here. It's as if Paul is saying, my desire now for you is that you would actually know God. That you would know the way He thinks, the things He wants, and that you would find a reciprocal or a, um, a response to that that would mirror His will. How is that going to happen? Well, it's not going to happen merely, though it requires study. But notice the text, verse 17. This God must give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, brethren, someone might stumble and say, well, this is lowercase s. It's not capital S, so it's not talking of the person of the Spirit. Only to remember that, of course, that is left to the translators. Notice if you back up to verse 13, it says, "...in whom also ye trusted in Christ, in that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise." Now, if you were to take the Greek word that's translated Spirit in verse 13, that happens to be capitalized, and you were to look then at the Greek word that is not capitalized in verse 17, spirit, you would find they are written exactly the same in the Greek. In other words, the point is, it's an interpretive measure that has to be considered. Why is it that we would contend this is the person of the Holy Spirit that is being mentioned? Because it is the person of the Holy Spirit which is mentioned as being given to the Son. And He is called the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. It is the person of the Holy Spirit who descends upon Christ and anoints Him above measure. It is the person of the Spirit who has already been given us, by whom we've been sealed and as it were given the first fruits, the down payment that we are God's 
and He is ours. And it's the same Spirit who opens our understanding. In other words, it's not some impersonal power of God that He uses to open our eyes. It is the person of the Spirit who operates upon us to give us this understanding. It is that person of the Spirit. Notice the Trinitarianism here in verse 17. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. So it speaks of the Father, and yet it speaks of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now the Spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. And you can see the Trinitarianism that is really throughout this epistle and ultimately throughout the Bible, and how each person of the one true Godhead is at work both for our salvation at the beginning, in that the Father has ordained us unto life through faith in Christ as renewed by the Spirit, as well as our sanctification. The Father, through the knowledge of Christ and for the sake of Christ, continues the blessing of the Spirit unto our growth. The whole of the Christian life is predicated upon the Trinity. There is no Christianity whatsoever without the triune God. Father and Son and Spirit. Well, more to our point, with reference to spiritual understanding, Paul addresses Christians. And yet Paul prays. He doesn't relax. He doesn't let up and say, well, at least you're in the kingdom now. Carry on with your life. He says, now, now, my earnest prayer is for you to grow. What a solemn thought it would be. What a horrific thought it would be for a mother to bring forth a child and say, well, brought the child into this life, now I'm done. The church isn't like that. So soon as one is brought into, as it were, the kingdom of life, the church is now earnest to cultivate and nurture and shepherd and help and guide and mature that. And that's what Paul is doing. I've heard you're converted. I rejoice in God with the angels in heaven that you've been brought to faith. But now it is my earnest desire that you would grow. How is that going to happen? Well, certainly there are means, as we saw last week. The Bible is the preeminent means. Sacraments, of course, as they are visible words, if we would say that. Prayer and so on. And yet what Paul is helping us to see is that once converted and once given the guidance of God's Word, the Christian requires the Spirit's ongoing ministry. And so we take up this truth that believers, the converted ones, require the Spirit's supernatural grace that they would continue to discern, embrace, and enjoy the truth of God. That ye may know what is the hope of His calling, with the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. So we wish to take this up to help us consider this great provision unto our spiritual understanding having been converted, which is for our great benefit. So consider three things. Firstly, the need for this spiritual understanding. The provision for this spiritual understanding. And the enjoyment of of it. Well, firstly, then, the need for spiritual understanding. We might note there is, of course, some confusion in our day about the role of the Spirit. We are grateful for Christians of every description. If Christians, there are brothers and sisters. And yet, there has been confusion over the ongoing ministry of the Spirit over the past. 100, 150 years. It's not been entirely without that in the past, but there's been an especial increase, especially since the 1960s, of a confusion about the role of the Spirit. And brethren, we can say this, there are some heretical charismatics. There are some, for instance, in our own city, Joyce Myers, who has said and is on record as saying that one must believe that Jesus Christ locally descended to hell and was reborn before one can believe that he is or she is a Christian. She renounces, renegotiates, and so on. She says other heretical things, and yet, of course, her international headquarters, just miles from here, is well-funded and is international. 
There are other charismatics who believe the gospel and would reject the heresy of Benny Hinn and others. And yet we would say among our brethren who are charismatics, there is a confusion that actually hinders their spiritual growth because they have replaced the present spiritual ministry of God's Spirit, which is preeminently about opening our eyes to see the truth of the Scripture regarding Christ and to make us know Him and love Him and serve Him and replace that with the apostolic gifts that characterize the first generation for the founding of the Gospel. What happens subtly is this. There is an infatuation with the sensational. And there is ultimately a neglecting of the truly spiritual. Think of this for a moment. All of the infatuation with talking in tongues and signs and wonders in historical context were but confirming signs that the message of the apostles about Christ was true. But in the current context is the thing that people long to experience in order that they may have some assurance that they're Christians or of spiritual use in the kingdom. But brethren, in their original context, the spiritual gifts were but confirming signs that the apostles were blessed of heaven to preach Christ. And they were distinct from gifts given to other people. Whereas today, the Spirit is largely neglected and is thought of as only the one who would produce the sensational gifts that the apostles themselves knew. But what happens is, it leads us to neglect the actual work of the Spirit so that Reformed Christians are hesitant to speak of themselves as Spirit-filled. Reformed Christians feel a little challenged to say that I am inhabited by the Spirit. And therefore, it is often the case that Reformed Christians are hesitant to pray because we don't know what we're praying, that we would be filled with the Spirit. That we would know more help from the Spirit. That we would enjoy the ministry of the Spirit. And largely, this is because of both the abuses of the charismatic side of things, and the ignorance of others. Well, notice then this help. Christians are graciously changed. I heard of your faith and of your love. I heard you were converted. That's what Paul's saying. And yet Christians remain dependent on the Spirit's ministry to know God and to know His benefits. Notice the text. That God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation to illumine our minds in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Children, there have been times when you have been in the dark room and there's no moon out at night and your eyes are as wide open as wide can be. And you can put your hand in front of your face and wave it there and you see nothing. There have been other times when your eyes have been wide open and someone turns on the light and it overwhelms your faculty of sight because the light has now penetrated your eye. Well, notice what Paul is saying. In some sense, he's saying, Christians, your eyes have been opened. But now my prayer is that your eyes would be further enlightened that more light would be able to enter in. Not different light, but more light. Of what? That you would know what is the hope of His calling, His calling of you, and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and so on. Notice he's not saying, here's what the Spirit's going to do. The Spirit's going to, I'm praying, I'm earnestly praying that the Spirit would come to you and give you new things to know. It's not it at all. He's saying, my prayer is that the Spirit would minister in your soul such that you would know the things that are, that have already been made known. What's the point? 
Well, this is the theological distinction between revelation, strictly so considered, and illumination. Revelation is that making known of truth, for instance, God's Word is revelation. God's Word, as we saw last week, is the God-breathed words by which He spoke the truth. He revealed what is. Illumination is not a new revelation. It is the ability of our mind, spiritually considered, to apprehend, to understand, and to embrace the truth made known to us. So in some sense you can think of it this way. Revelation is the matter made known. Illumination is the matter understood. So this is why Paul says that your eyes of your understanding being enlightened that ye may know what is the hope of His calling and so on. And think about the things that Paul lists. We don't have a purpose to go through all that follows, but you can summarize this. That you would know God. That you would know how to enjoy Him. The riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. And so this need for a spiritual understanding is ultimately for our benefit that we would better know Him, know His purpose, and enjoy Him, and enjoy His purpose. We might say for just a moment, have you not known seasons of reading the Bible and it's as if ideas are leaping from the page and gladdening your hearts. It's not that something's been newly revealed. It's the revelation that was given when the first word was written. What is happening is that words that you've read and you could understand as far as the grammar's considered are now being used of the Spirit to minister that truth unto your soul. Here's an instance as an example. A Christian, mark it, a Christian can struggle with conviction of sin. And the Christian perhaps has read the Bible through ten times over. And then in his private reading, is reading the Bible, and he comes to the passage, if we say we're without sin, you know, we are a liar, truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And it hits us. And it leads us to do what? Thank you, God, that there is forgiveness for my sins. And I confess my sins to you. What's just happened? Not new revelation. It's old revelation. Not new understanding in the mental and intellectual aspect. It's old understanding. What's happened is a spiritual work has taken place whereby God has, as it were, opened the heart and placed that truth in, so motivating the Christian now to claim that promise and to rejoice in the joy of what is provided us in the truth. And here's something to consider. This whole book is full of treasures for you. The whole book from Genesis to Revelation for the Christian is a book filled with treasures. They must be mined with diligent study, but it requires more than that. And Paul, who was a most studious disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, is acknowledging that. Study is needed far more than our culture understands. But it's more than study. What is needed is the Spirit's work to open our understanding spiritually, to quicken our souls with fresh renewal that we would take in and feed upon the Word of God. That's what Paul is getting at. And brethren, do you not sense your own need for that? Some of you are given more to academic studies than others. It's no different. Others have different gifts than others have. But each of us knows something, if a believer, of laboring and reading the Word, and it's full of all of this truth we acknowledge, and yet it feels as if we're actually declining. Well, we could become frustrated and say, well, I'm done. That's the wrong answer. We don't close the book because our hearts are being closed. We open the book and we pray, Lord, open my heart. 
And if you wish to see this with frequency, sit down for an hour and read Psalm 119. For one hour, read it straight through. And mark how many different ways the psalmist is saying, open my eyes, quicken me, give me understanding. All of these different ways the psalmist is seeking to express this aspect. You're the one who must open my eyes. I will not stop meditating upon your word, but even with the utmost diligence. If I were to sit down from now till however long it takes and read through the Bible without ceasing, I would still need you to open my eyes and illumine my soul that I may know the spiritual nourishment of your word. That's what Paul is pointing out. So the need we have is founded upon the fact that though the Bible demands reasonable, that is, rational understanding, this is why we don't take a text out of context and you know, work at what we wanted to say, but we labor and say, what does it mean? And we work with the words and the context and so on because it means what it means. But we realize that once that's been done, there's still more that is required. The Lord must open our understanding and provide us this spiritual instruction to the end that our souls would be benefited. Well then, secondly, What is the provision for this spiritual understanding? Notice quite simply, it is not the Christian himself. Paul doesn't say, I rejoice that God has given you this grace. I heard of your faith and of your love, and I say, now you're sufficient of yourself. He doesn't say that. He says, now... I cease not to give thanks, making mention of you in my prayers, that God may give unto you His Spirit for this purpose. It's not saying that, well, you've been converted, now you need a second blessing. It's not higher life spirituality where we have, as it were, well, I'm a believer, but I await the Spirit's second outpouring and now I'm a super believer. That's not it. It's rather the Spirit who has been given us, who is given to us as that Holy Spirit of promise, would continue ministering within us so as to discern and benefit from the truth of His Word. So it's not of ourselves. Brethren, in some sense we can say it this way, it's not even of our graces. Because what Paul is seeking is the Lord's supply of the Spirit. So the provision for our spiritual understanding is the Spirit Himself. It is the Spirit who teaches us of Christ. It is the Spirit who provides us to understand His Word. This is why whenever we sit down in our families to have a time in His Word, we should sit down and pray Simple words, but sincere words. As in the the language of the psalmist, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things from thy law. Quicken me. Enlarge my heart. Give understanding unto me how many simple petitions there are that though I might be the elite of academia, I still require the Spirit's ministry so that I don't just understand the facts and figures, but that the truths of the Scriptures feed and nourish my soul to enjoy God. Children, some of you should know this right away. What is the chief end of man? You should be able to answer that. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You know that. What rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him? The Word of God which is contained in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments is the only rule. So on. But here's the point. The only way that you'll benefit from that rule to glorify and enjoy God 
is as the person of the Holy Spirit applies these things unto your soul. So you can think of it in a physical way. If our body has received a cut and such that becomes infected, the doctor writes a prescription for a salve, some sort of cream or ointment, and we go to the pharmacist, we get it, and we put it in our medicine, or we put it on our counter, wherever it might go, we don't look at it and say, well, now my cut's going to get better. What do we need to happen? We have to have the ointment, the salve, the medicine, whatever it is, applied unto our cut to overcome the infection. Well, similarly, the Spirit takes the word of truth and He applies it to the soul. Brethren, here's the point. We've touched on this already in the past. But when we're converted, we are truly saved. We are saved unto that eternal salvation. But in this life, there are remaining sins. The believer knows this by experience. You give the person 10, 15, 20 years, and they'll be the first to say, I thought I had everything figured out. I realize that I'm lacking a lot. And I'm astounded to know how much corruption there is remaining in me. I thought for a season that I've overcome everything. It sprung out again. Ask David. David was a man after God's own heart. In a moment of declension and weakness, he sees Bathsheba and he commits deplorable and heinous sins. There was corruption in David that in many ways he was ignorant of. Brethren, may I say a word of warning? There's corruption in you that you may be ignorant of. But God's not ignorant of it. And moreover, God has provided help for your benefit. The Word of God, our only rule, our standard, and the Spirit of God. So that a common expression among Reformed Christians is by the Word and Spirit. It's the Spirit by and with the Word that gives life. It's the Spirit by and with the Word that ministers growth and encouragement and strength and maturity and so on. But the point is this, whereas the Word of God gives us that standard, that regulatory, that ultimate rule of faith and worship and practice, it is the Spirit who must use that Word to advance and mature and strengthen us. And so the provision is not an abstracted notion or an attribute, but it is the person of the Spirit of God Himself. You can see some aspect of this if you turn to 1 Corinthians. And Paul takes this up in a number of places, but he speaks, for instance, of this matter regarding the Spirit. And so he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 10, God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Notice in verse 14, the natural man, that's the unconverted man, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? He may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. You can see the essence of the point. It requires the person of the Spirit to take the truths and open our understanding. That happens initially at conversion, where the Spirit gives us that initial opening and draws us to embrace Jesus Christ. But the ongoing ministry of the Spirit is much the same. Where that Spirit who has been given us was not given us as merely this first responder paramedic to give life to us and then leave. He remains for us our lifelong spiritual help and physician. 
applying the work of the good physician to our souls. Ever helping, applying the salve of Christ to us. Ever nourishing, providing the food of our souls, Christ to us. Ever sanctifying, nurturing us in the knowledge and grace of God. And it is God Himself, as the Spirit is divine, who is doing this work so that we can say the whole spectrum of salvation is a divine work. So the provision of this help is none other than the third person of the Blessed Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God, which leads us then to the enjoyment of the spiritual understanding. What is it that this work of the Spirit does? Notice Paul doesn't say, well now if you get this blessing, now you'll really be a super Christian or now you'll have reached a height that other Christians don't. It's nothing of that sort. This is actually Christianity 101. Some of you have gone to college. Others know of it. You enter at an entry-level course, a 101 course, and you have to have that and other Level, similarly leveled courses before you can take the next level. Brethren, what Paul is getting at is not advanced Christian teaching. This is not 501 level stuff. This is not postgraduate courses. This is basic, rudimentary, universal expectation for all Christians everywhere. As I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the love to the saints, I pray Oh God, open their eyes by Your Spirit that they may know these things. He's not writing to a colloquium of office bearers. He's not writing to a presbytery constituted in the name and authority of Christ. He's writing to all believers and saying this is for you. Why? Because it's only insofar as the Spirit works in this way that you will have any enjoyment of God. It is only as the Spirit works in accordance to His grace this way that you will mature as a Christian. It's only as the Spirit works in accordance to His grace this way that you will indeed delightfully serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the point. If you hope to have any enjoyment of God in this life, if you hope to have any growth of godliness, it comes down to the necessity of the Spirit working in this way. But here's the good news. This is what the Spirit is given to us to do. He's given to us to lead us in the things of Christ. He's given to us to sanctify us. And so you could think, and we'll talk about this in a subsequent sermon, conversion. When one is converted by the Spirit, then it is that by the Spirit, once converted, they are to mortify the deeds of the body that they may live. The same Spirit which initiates the saving work continues that saving work. And so any growth of sanctification will require the Spirit's work. The Spirit doesn't come, give you life, and then back up having wound you up and say, carry on. The Spirit inhabits the Christian so as that He is made willing to do, to will and to do, of all of God's good pleasure. So you can see that in the text, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know, think of this language, what is the hope, the confidence, the assurance of His calling, and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. There's a world of difference, isn't there? between knowing that someone has millions of dollars versus looking into your bank account and being astounded, I have millions of dollars. Now I imagine that no one here can say, I look into my bank account and I see that I have access to millions of dollars. But can you not imagine the physical, temporal comfort that might be yours if you did? All my bills are paid. I have wise investments. I have wise investors. I have things secured and so on. And temporally speaking, so long as I can assume and see these things clearly, I have no need to concern myself about financial problems. Surely in this life things can happen. 
But most would say that would be physically, temporally, financially a benefit. Well, brethren, whatever that might be true financially, it is a greater benefit what you have access to. Because if a believer, you have the certainty of the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. In other words, God has given to His saints this rich inheritance for their enjoyment, and it's yours. There was a testimony of one remember all the details, but a lady who was caring for uh, a, a, a widow or a widower and was diligent to visit and care for uh, this one, and uh, that person had no real close uh, descendants and was, unbeknownst to this neighbor, very wealthy. And this neighbor simply visited to call on to care for, to get groceries, how's it going, and so on. And then time passes and the person dies. And weeks pass and then a knock on the door and it's unbeknownst to the person who is this friendly neighbor, the attorney representing the estate of this elderly person. And to this person's shocking surprise, this elderly neighbor had left all the estate to this person. And you can imagine this shock of seeing, I now possess all of this wealth. Brethren, most of us live with our eyes closed to the wealth that is ours by and in Christ. And the Spirit ministers to open our eyes more fully, to cause us to see what is ours because of Christ. Now, surely we must employ the means. Because remember, He's not going to minister to us as it were avoiding the means, but rather He's opening our eyes spiritually to discern the teaching of the Word of God. But if we are to enjoy the riches, if we are to be those who rejoice in the things which are ours, it must be more than just the rattling off of facts and figures but rather the embrace of them, the living upon them, the living in light of them. This is what the Spirit causes to happen. He leads us to know God, always according to God's Word, not in some divorced mystical experience, but rather a mysticism grounded in the sound revelation of God's Word. He leads us to enjoy God and His benefits, the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. As we begin to enjoy those riches, it changes us because we begin to see how amply provided for we are in Christ. And every Christian has had this experience one way or another, to some degree or another, that one little whisper of a coin of Christ's riches is open to us and we say, this is exceeding valuable. And brethren, there is a limitless supply of those spiritual gold coins for our souls the more we become acquainted with Christ according to His Word. And it's the Spirit that causes us to see that and to register it in the account of our souls. Brethren, should the Spirit continue His work among us, our souls will become ravished by the beauty of Christ. Should the Spirit continue His work among us, our souls will count all things but dung for the knowledge of the excellency of the Lord Jesus Christ. Should the Spirit work within us, we should see this world fade and heaven's light increase with glory because of Christ made known to us in the Scriptures. In order to pursue this, consider your calling. You can speak of or think of your particular callings, husband, wife, student, worker, whatever it might be, but think more particularly of simply your Christian calling. You are called to walk with God in the face of every temptation and to overcome it, conquering it with joy. Hear that again. 
every temptation that comes your way, your calling is to magnify the glorious name of God with joy, to renounce the world, and to say, I'm willing to suffer rather than sin, and to do so happily. You say, that's impossible, and you're 100% right if you're looking to your source in yourself. But if it's the Spirit who is opening to you the riches of Christ, you'll start to get a little sense of how it is that people are able to live that way sincerely. It's not because they're of a different, as it were, skill set or personality. There have been quiet people and loud people. There have been extroverts and introverts. There have been academics and blue-collar workers. All who have treasured Christ and said, I am willing to forego whatever this world offers so that I may know and serve Christ. Why is that the case? Because the Spirit worked within them to cause and to see, to taste and see that God is good. Who trusts in Him is blessed. If you are to fulfill your calling as a Christian to show forth the praises of Him who has called you, to deny the world, to deny this world and all of its temptations, and to do so gladly, you must, you must have the Spirit's work. There's no other way. Because the Spirit draws you to lay hold of Christ and to enjoy His fellowship. That's what the Spirit does. He makes you to see and behold the beauty and your heart to be ravished by it. It's more than this, but you can think of it this way. You take a child to an art museum and there's some masterpiece by Monet or someone else for that matter and they look at it and say, well, let's go look at you know, something else. But one who has been trained to discern beauty stands there and they can be lost with amazement at the contrast and the coloring and so on. And they say, there's beauty here. Why? Because they've been trained to discern it, whereas the child is just interested in following a spider along. There's something more than that in the spiritual realm. The Spirit is actually giving the opening of the heart to discern the beauty of Christ. Whereas the world passes Christ by and says, let me follow after garbage. The Spirit opens us to discern the true beauty that is before us in Christ. If you don't see Christ as beautiful, here's why. The Spirit is not operating on you. And you're being left to your own natural ability. That should make you to say, don't let me continue on blinded to the beauty of Christ. But Christian, you've seen something of the beauty of Christ. And yet you and I must both confess that we have also many times turned from that beauty to follow after deception. This is why Paul is praying. And this is why you and I must pray And ask, Lord, would You open the eyes of my understanding that I may behold wondrous things from Your law. Would You open the eyes of my understanding that I may see the beauty of Christ. Would You open the eyes of my understanding that I may know the hope of Your calling, the glory of Your inheritance among the saints. Would You open my eyes and You fear this question, why should I do that for You? It's a fair question. Here's why, God. Because You are merciful and gracious and Your Word holds it forth in way of promise. Your Word has said that You will not withhold Your Spirit from Him which asks. I'm not worthy of it. I don't deserve it. But I come to You according to Your Word and promise and I plead, I plead, give me Your Spirit. Open my that I may discern the truth of Your Word. Give me Your Spirit that I may see the beauty which passes all the beauty of the earth. Give me Your Spirit that I may see that everything else is as a shadow. And I would stand with Paul and say, take it all from me. It's refuse. It's waste compared to the beauty of Christ. That only comes by the Spirit's work. Brethren, you and I need Him to continue His work in us and in us corporately.
So brethren, this leads us to say pray. Pray and confess you don't want to pray. Pray and say, I'd rather have my eyes on other things, but I'm coming saying, I need you to open my eyes. I want you to make me want you to open my eyes. I desire you to desire me to open my eyes. Make it so, God. Give me your Spirit. I cast myself before you. And I say, I long to see the glory and beauty of Christ. I long to feed on His Word. I long to run the way of His commandments. And what are you asking? You're asking this. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. That's what you're asking. You're praying, God, glorify Yourself. Do you remember what God the Father said? This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And what is our prayer? I want the glory in Your beloved Son. I want to find Him well pleasing. I want to see His beauty. I want to live for Him. I want to die to myself and die to this world that I would only live for Christ who is altogether beautiful. That's a petition that registers in heaven. The Father loves to give glory to His Son. The Spirit loves to give glory to Christ Jesus. Go and own your deplorable, your utterly reprehensible and inexcusable infatuation with shadows and trash and waste and say, Oh God, deliver me from all of this that I may be satisfied with the beauty of Christ as You've revealed to him to me in Your Word. Brethren, pray that for others. Paul prays it for the Ephesians. Ought we not to pray it for one another? What is the end of all of this? It's twofold. It's our soul's spiritual good. Beauty discerned by the physical eye results in a physical happiness. There's emotions and all of those things that take place. Synapses fire and our bodies are moved. Spiritual beauty results in spiritual happiness. We seek our own good and others' good, which is one end. But the other end is this. The glory of God. That God is glorified in the same. Stand with me for prayer.